0: You know I love myself a little shop around the corner.
1: This is just like Plato's tripartite soul.
0: I mean, I forgot how good grilled cheeses are.
1: (laughs) Steakums will drag you.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Literary Connections. We are three friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world. And we're using books to stay connected. I'm Melissa, calling in from San Francisco, California. Um, You know, I would describe myself as sweet, not cheesy.
1: (laughs) And I'm James, hoping I'll never need to make So Sorry Blondies, but also kind of hoping I'll have to make So Sorry Blondies in Milan, Italy. And this week we read Tweet Cute by Emma Lord, a book that we don't feel bad about spoiling because I feel like the spoil is in the title. It's a meet cute. They're going to be together in the end. Okay, Melissa, would you want to do the summary or should I do the summary this week?
0: Oh, I mean, I will take it away. I really enjoyed this book. We're in New York City. We're at a prep school. Imagine Gossip Girl because they tell us to imagine it a lot. And so there's Pepper, who is our main female character, and she works for her mother at Big League Burger, which used to be a small town joint in Nashville and has now gone super franchise across the United States. Ever since that happened, her family moved to New York and now she goes to a super elite prep school. Um, where she's at the top of her class and is super competitive and really doesn't really have any friends. On the other side, you've got Jack, who works at his family's deli called Girl Cheesing, which is not very well known. It's also like faded from the public consciousness. They're like kind of living paycheck to paycheck. And he and his twin brother, um, Ethan, both attend the same prep school as Pepper. And Jack is like the class clown, doesn't take things very seriously, or at least that's what Pepper thinks. And so what ends up happening is Big League Burger Corporation starts a new special called the Grandma's Special, which is a grilled cheese that's the exact same recipe as the Grandma's Special at Girl Cheesing. Jack sees this, gets cheesed off, and basically subtweets Girl Cheesing and is like, y'all are horrible criminals who've copied us. Thus starts a Twitter war because Pepper owns the Twitter for Big League Burger. So they start fighting there. At the same time in real life, Jack is on the diving team and Pepper's on the swim team and they're competing over pool rights in person where they know who each other are. And at another level, Jack has developed a app that allows you to message your classmates in secret and you don't know who anyone's identity is. And they're also falling in love on this app, not knowing who the other person is. So there are three layers where their rivals To lovers (laughs) and it's very satisfying
1: yeah it's a very complicated plot i think you did a great job uh, of summarizing it there
0: i mean again like it's hard not to spoil the ending because you know it from the title
1: it's more about the process of getting there and all of the power dynamics that they're going to need to navigate in order to get there through these three different platforms, arguably four different platforms because they have their swim team, dive team rivalry, but also just the general rivalry of being classmates in a senior year and trying to get into colleges. So on all these different levels, there are different power dynamics that need to be reconciled and have the harsh corners worn down so that they can ultimately... IRL. IRL. Be together.
0: Yeah, I feel like there were so many mediums and I like was having a really hard time keeping track of like, who knew who was who in which one at any given time. James, was this hard for you?
1: Yeah. I think that it was overwhelming at times because it's obviously got connections to other warring family pieces of media and the Romeo and Juliet trope, Mm -hmm. the the you've got male trope, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Oh, we will. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. but it but it just you know it wasn't just okay on some anonymous platform they like each other but then IRL they're rivals it wasn't just that it was like in all these different places there's different levels of rivalry and uh, I think in the moment I was like, it might be too much, but then upon reflection, you could see that each of the different levels sort of serves a purpose. In real life, there is a physical tension that you feel like they're both on a swim team. You know, there, there are moments when they are trying to occupy the same physical space, but also there's like a physical tension is in they're both attracted to each other. And there's like moments where they almost kiss. Scandalous. And then as each of them unknowingly at first are managing the Twitter accounts of their respective eateries, Girl Cheesing, the, the family run diner and Big League Burger, the national chain, there's a an emotional tension. Like there's a fight that's going on. So it's not so much the physical tension, but that emotional tension of two angry people, two angry corporations, sort of yelling at each other and trying to undermine each other. And then in the Weasel app that Jack developed, there's this intellectual tension where they help each other solve problems and help each other at school and have this emotional support. But also like on an intellectual level, they're like having a a real connection. And so then I was thinking like this is just like Plato's Tripartite Soul where you have the animal brain, the like physical desire, tension thing, IRL. You've got the emotional part of your brain being expressed and performed on Twitter. And then you've got the rational intellectual side of your brain that was being expressed on the Weasel app. And like each of these things need to be worked out for us to have a happy ending.
0: Yeah, like your soulmate itches all three (laughs)
1: Yeah. And so they have to do that. And, you know, I, I thought it was super interesting about how once they recognize that they are Twitter rivals, like once it comes out that like Pepper runs the Big League Burger Twitter and Jack runs the Girl Cheesing Twitter that like emotional anger element becomes performative. Like they're still able to express themselves, but it's it's in this like almost fun way. Like they are just performing power and they are performing emotion and performing anger. And that like gives them a way to express some of that tension. Obviously there are some moments when the Twitter account gets taken over by twin <laughs> brothers and things like that, that, that mess, <laughs> mess with this, but I found that really interesting.
0: Well, yeah, and then also the Twitter thing adds like this extra layer of tension when like people start shipping them. Yeah. Like on Tumblr?
1: <laughs> right. So there's like, that's that's part of the performative element. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that was really fun.
0: In so many instances, there's idea of like, who you think you should be and who you are and where these different pressures come in, whether it's college or like your family legacy and whether or not you should take on the family deli or do you go to Columbia? What do you want to do? And then all of a sudden there's this like next layer of pressure that comes in, which is like, also, what does the internet want you to do? And how do you sort of play that game? And honestly, I'm kind of surprised they only had pretty positive relationships with the internet. Big League Burger like never got canceled. (laughs) Pepper did not experience any misogyny. I was like, this seems like a very ideal way that this would go down in the internet, which is kind of cute, but seems like it would not happen in real life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. That is interesting. So she was bullied on the internet after barfing in the Big League Burger bag. But the form that that bullying took wasn't. As we know, like a place like Reddit or something could be. That's true. It wasn't just overtly and and highly and like violently misogynistic.
0: It's it's the kind of shame that you would shame someone with in a post-gender society where there isn't misogyny and it's like, oh, you're literally just a hypocrite. Yeah. Where you're like barfing into the product that you've been like pimping out the entire time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think there's something interesting and and I I don't know if I fully have this worked out, but there's something interesting in the performance of because in in each of these platforms, there's a pseudonym. Like Pepper is Big League Burger. Jack is Girl Cheesing. Jack is Wolf. um, Pepper Mm -hmm. is Bluebird and there's like something that they're hiding behind so i think it calls attention to exactly what you were saying about this that each of these things have a personality that exists outside of the actual human and those avatars for your personality, they come preloaded with expectations publicly. So the mm-hmm. the individual behind these things doesn't exist outside of those expectations, and they enter into that discourse. And so the things bring that context, which is really interesting.
0: Yeah, and it goes back to what you're talking about, power dynamics, right? Like Pepper is in the big league burger persona. It's all like Mean Girls gifts of like, do you even go here? <laughs> it's very superior. Um, they're top dog, while Jack, as girl cheesing, is the underdog. Is the rebel in your star wars scenario and is really like poking at the big league yeah versus when you think about bluebird versus wolf there is a different sort of power dynamic between those two animals even
1: in the names yeah
0: exactly it like speaks to this level of vulnerability that they're able to show in that especially like a bird being much more vulnerable and a wolf being a lot more confident and potentially being willing to put yourself out there a little bit more. And I think there's like this other layer when then they get to school, which are there's like those two layers of like the, the swim team stuff as well as like the IRL stuff where so much of her identity within school and academics is her being separate from everyone else to like basically to be better than the competition. Mm -hmm. And he having this other idea of like, I don't want to be so close to my Troy Bolton of a brother. You don't even know that I'm like an amazing coder behind the scenes and I've created the thing that you are all on. And then in the swim team scenario where she's the captain, but barely. So there's this hesitation there and like feeling like she's going to lose her role compared to Jack, who isn't the president of the dive club, but his brother is too busy making out with his boyfriend. (laughs) To do it. And then Jack feels like he has to do it. Like he does everything for Ethan. He's going to take over the family business. He's going to have to take over the diving team because his brother's in this happy relationship. And then that different relationship of where they come in to negotiate that swim space.
1: Yeah, and and the other power dynamic inside the Weasel app is that Jack is the creator of it. Mm -hmm. And so the Weasel app is designed so that when you enter a private conversation with somebody at some random unexpected time, it will just reveal your identities and Jack has the power to turn that off for his conversation with Bluebird. And that's super interesting because like Pepper is unaware of the power dynamic that exists there, but it's underlying. So yeah, each of these different platforms that they are performing this meet cute, each have these really interesting ways of dealing with with a power dynamic that is unequal and sometimes not even known to, to each other.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Jack is a wolf in weasel's clothing.
1: <laughs> there was another thing about the weasel and Twitter app that that interested me, because each of these things in the end are texts. Like they, they you can read them as though they're texts, um, and I mean that in terms of like the mm-hmm. Roland Bart like literary text kind of way, not in the like iPhone messaging app texting. Right, right. Yeah. But they, but they perform more like spoken words with with context and like with a speaker, because with a text you can say like "death of the author" type of things, but with a tweet. It's temporally located, like it comes with a timestamp, it exists in a space, it exists in a context, it has a speaker, but it lasts. And I think this is like an interesting thing because it's it's something that the world is struggling with right now of like these things perform like speech acts, but they in the end are texts that are read by everybody all over the world forever and ever and are going to appear in different contexts that they weren't necessarily meant for. And I think there's something interesting about that. And it, it makes more sense on the Weasel app because the context stays the same. It's like Stone Hall, these people will read it. And it's not a global context, but a local context.
0: Yeah, and it's a local context where people are able to be better versions of themselves. How like Pooja is like not actually the competitive asshole that Pepper thinks, but is actually the one organizing study halls for all of the students so they all can get better at calculus. And there's like a lot of things where that people are helping each other and engaging with each other. Versus like on Twitter, where I feel like the anonymity is what like turns you into an asshole. I feel like there's like lots of psychology studies where whenever you take people's accountability away, give them anonymity, they start taking more advantage of the people around them. And so what I think is interesting with Weasel is that Obviously, Jack is doing some amount of content moderation, which he admits to. But I do think it's that element of like what you're talking about, where you at any time in a DM, you could be exposed for who you actually are. And so it's this mix of anonymity allows you to be slightly different than yourself. But because you can be exposed at any time, it's a different version of yourself that is actually more willing to contribute to this community.
1: On Weasel, they've got the pop goes the weasel moment where their identities are are exposed. But also on Twitter, that same kind of thing happens just at a much larger scale because they are the people behind these corporate uh, uh, Twitter handles. However, um, when the Grubhub blog post, is it Grubhub? Buzzfeed. Okay. When they come out with their expose about this issue, their real identities are exposed in the same way that Weasel would expose their identities, their true identities. And that's when the public starts shipping them. In addition to that, I think that Jack's moderation of the Weasel app is a super interesting thing to discuss um, because there is a sort of romanticization of the local and decentralized here where if there's a community that's small enough, there can be a benevolent dictator that decides what is acceptable and what is not, and the community benefits from this kind of moderation. Like That's what this book uh, proposes. It's a philosophy that this book proposes. What do you think about that?
0: Just to, not to talk about like my own work, but I've been working a lot on content moderation within my own work and content moderation policies. And there are so many things that people would disagree about. What counts as something that is inappropriate? Some things are very, very obvious, and you're like, oh, put it in your handbook. You know, you know it when you know it. It's very right. the I know pornography when I see it, Supreme Court's perspective on things. But in human interaction, it's so hard to especially online, like especially like, what is the context around what a conversation is for you to make a moderating decision, especially between two different parties. Exactly what we're saying around con- on just like the local context, like you can do that if you know exactly what we're saying, the context. You know the context of the school, you know the power dynamics of the school. Um, you're able to understand what people's intentions are because you are fully bought into everything Basically, that people would be talking about, and so it does almost make sense in that instance. I think what is interesting compared to the other books, we you know, obviously we chose a lighter book, um, like a more rom comy book for me. But it was interesting that, like, really in a book about the internet and anonymity and all these things, we really didn't actually see like a lot of misogyny or racism, which I think has shown up in a lot of our books thus far in our book club. And I think that also is interesting to me is like, right, it's like, yes, Jack can moderate this. But really, at this really elite prep school, there's not like a bunch of racist things being posted about Puja. Yeah, what counts as racist? I think that there are, obviously, I think there was not enough time in this book to go into that. But I think it's one of those like, like IRL, this would have gone a little bit differently.
1: Right, like there's overt bullying on the the Twitter platform of their relationship that happens, particularly when Ethan posts the gif of her barfing into the bag. There's overt bullying going on, and it seems like Jack just, like, squashes that right away.
0: Yeah, it's all very, like, overt bullying. Everything that is said in these contexts has, like, a very, like, strong or negative or completely understood intention, and there aren't a lot of, like, sort of muddied waters in these text interactions.
1: Yeah, that's true. There's not a lot of subtext that's happening. Yeah, I'm I'm reading and i don't pretend to fully understand the argument that judith butler is making but i'm reading a book uh, by judith butler called excitable speech and she's talking about hate speech and what should constitute hate speech and trying to find a way to understand the the distinctions and she discusses how like there are some things that are obviously hate speech but then there are some people who would say the word abortion is hate speech because it evokes this violent thing in their minds And she like doesn't see that on the same level as some other hate speech just like the definition of what is acceptable it makes the well it's porn because i know it when i see it kind of attitude that these things are actually very subjective and that it's very difficult to draw like in terms of policy Mm -hmm. and moderation of these things it is very difficult to draw the line and the context matters a lot and i think since jack is like a local legacy understands the school's father went there kind of thing he is in a position where he can understand the context and, but it's still, I think there's definitely still a romanticization of this decentralization of these kinds of apps.
0: You brought up something interesting that I hadn't thought about, about the book around the local context that Jack has. And there's this big part about what is your home and how do you take ownership of a space that comes up in the book a lot where she feels so uncomfortable because she's a Nashville girl. And she's like, I knew everything in Nashville. I could travel by myself. I would like get on a bus and like leave my mom behind and it would be totally comfortable. But then it turns out that she's literally like never left within like a a small, like four or five block radius since she's been to New York for four years. And Jack is like such a New York legacy in every sense of the word and is able to take her to her college interview and help her get on the subway for the first time and that element of, in all ways, that mastery of the local that he is able to sort of display and sort of like give him that authority.
1: Yeah, that's, that, is, that is really interesting because yeah, it's uh, like she's provincial in a very interesting way where she just doesn't leave this little area. And so Jack isn't necessarily like international, but he is pan New York City mm-hmm. and he's an expert in that. And so this idea of like neighborhood versus the city Little corner shop versus international burger chain, local platform chat app versus international app Twitter.
0: I mean, you know I love myself a little shop around the corner.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, what are your thoughts on the, the use of the little shop around the corner trope?
0: Yeah, I I mean... Uh... Uh, candid for our audience, like obsessed every level of it. If it's like the play, if it's like the musical, She Loves Me, um, which I did see on Broadway with Zachary Levi. And obviously the premiere version of it, which is You've Got Mm -hmm. Mail. There's something really interesting about how each of these update the story for each generation who gets it. The original version, it's two coworkers to start where it's like, oh, we're like rival coworkers within the same perfumery and we happen to be secret pen pals the entire time and so like there's a sense of rivalry there but it's not like my livelihood is on the line and also there's still like the written element um but your pen pals which is obviously adorable Mm -hmm. um and then you get to that that's like the 40s and the 60s when you think about like all those adaptations and then when we get to you've got mail in the 90s, all of a sudden, it's like, well, we need to modernize it for our audiences. And so they're not pen pals anymore. They're like anonymous people who met in a chat room. Mm-hmm. And they do add in the element of competition between the two businesses, which obviously Tweet Cute has continued. Um, the big corporation, as well as like the small shop around the corner. So instead of them working at the same shop, now they're in two separate elements. What's interesting to me, in contrast of You've Got Mail and tweet cuter two things that sort of come up for me the first of which is the gender dynamic of it all where in you've got male, you're like of course like the big corporate guy is going to be like the guy in the situation Uh and also we're going to be like realistic and his big business that even if she pushes against it is going to crush her business we're not in a utopia world like this is what would happen. That is what happened with Barnes & Noble and Borders. And now RIP Borders, Amazon did it to you. Mm-hmm. So I think there's one element there that is very interesting where in TweetCute, it's her mom. It's like a very like, oh, it's a woman executive, power boss sort of situation. But in the same way, I think there still is an element of rich people suck <laughs> in it. But like in a very interesting gendered way where like, and you've got male, Tom Hanks and his family suck. You can tell it where his grandfather and father just keep on marrying increasingly younger wives. And Tom Hanks has an aunt who's like five years old while he's like 40. And here, there is this element of Tweet Cute where her mom is kind of you, like, you cannot be maternal and a boss bitch. Like, she really has, like, destroyed the relationship with her children while the father is, like, totally fine in Nashville because he's just, like, down to earth. And then there also is this element of, like, the entire plot hinges on her kind of being, like, a woman scorned, which I, like, don't super love. Yeah. We can talk about, like, later on. And then the other thing that comes up for me in the modernization of it is I love You've Got Mail, but I don't know if I could have someone who is younger than, like, 25 watch it and, like, get it. And like understand emotionally how good a movie it is, because it's so dated, which I think speaks to like when I watched She Loves Me on Broadway, I was like, it doesn't feel like in the same sort of like data thing. There is a timelessness of like, oh, it's two people who work in a shop together and they also like write secret messages like you kind of understand that. But there's so much about the Internet. And once you join Internet culture that moves so fast that You've Got Mail is instantly dated. People are just like, wait, are you online? Like, yeah, no <laughs> shit, we're online. We're all online. <laughs> it's, like, not weird that you met someone on the internet. Like, you don't know that You've Got Mail, dude. You don't have a phone where you're getting updates, like, the entire time. You have to wait until you're, like, on the computer and, like, your boyfriend has left down the elevator so you can, like, message yeah. him. Like, it's just, it's, all of it is so dated and you're not going to understand. Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> and you hear... You hear that You've Got Mailman. Yeah. That's, uh, that's really yeah. funny. We are a generation that understands the You've Got Mailman and the joy of yes. hearing his voice come out. And
0: like and... cute, I think, is also in the same way. Already while I was like reading the tweets, I'm like, oh God, is this already dated? Like, I'm sure you wrote this like two years ago, Emma Lord. And yeah, we still use like Mean Girl references, but is that like the height of like a cutting remark? I don't know if like people would enjoy this book or understand like the allure of the sassiness 10 years from now. Like, we're probably not even going to be on Twitter anymore. Them looking at, like, a Twitter cutout of what a Twitter, like, username looks like, it's probably going to be, like, this generation's version of, like, you've got mail. And we're just going to need another version of Shop Around the Corner for, like, the 2030s.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want to circle back to what you were saying about the, the woman scorned and the gender dynamics between the female CEO of the multinational corporation and the father who runs the operations at the deli which it's it's worth noting that there's a super on top of that that is the grandmother is the matriarch who first started the deli and she is the authority behind it as well so even though the father runs the operations there is a matriarch at the top there but i do think that the gender power dynamic like there were many power dynamics pepper is the the Victorian and captain and all these other things the gender one doesn't show up as much as i thought it would There's a couple references, like when Pepper comments about how her mother wouldn't assume that there's a male CEO on the other side of something, um, but seems to be using male pronouns when talking about the girl cheesing Twitter account, and she finds that interesting. And so like, it's brought up in these sort of tangential ways, but then it plays into some caustic female stereotypes like the woman scorned.
0: And you could see it coming like a mile away, which Mm. is also maybe just like, oh, typical. And I think that the author tried to soften it where um, we heard the dad's perspective first, which was classic woman scorned, where it's like, yeah, like we were kind of dating and then I met your mother and you know, I just can't resist your mother and she's amazing. And so like I had to break up with this like bitch from Nashville and she just looks so upset and I guess she just stole my recipe. And then we hear like the mother's version of it, which is like, no, this dude stole my recipes first.
1: Kitchen sink macaroons.
0: Exactly. So like I can then steal his recipes back in a bigger vindictive way and try to make it a little less into a woman's score and more like a professional rivalry and jealousy of like, it's actually about recipes, it's not about love. But at the same time, like he is now in like a loving marriage where he's very, very happy. He has two great sons. He's got now a thriving business she is still alone with a very caustic relationship with at least one of her daughters. I think there were a lot of places in the book where the book did a good job of showing like, there are always two sides to every story. And you're like, oh, Pooja didn't give her the wrong answer on purpose. She thought she was helping her. And then this entire rivalry was based on a misunderstanding Mm -hmm. or how Ethan and Jack thought about what it means to be a golden child for their parents in a different way. And each of those paid off really, really well throughout the book. But this one just did not. I did not find either of their parents' stories compelling of reasons why that they were assholes to each other. <laughs> and part of me kind of actually just wanted it to be almost like a little bit more simple. Yeah. And maybe I'm just like sensitive to the fact that like right, this woman scorned thing is she doesn't get to be like mother of the year. She's barely CEO of the year because she does not know how to hire a proper marketing department for her business. <laughs> And she like, she's she's not, there isn't a partner that she has that she cares about or cares about her. Like she's kind of like left alone with her terrible Twitter account and her vindictive heart.
1: Right. There's also something interesting about how she hired Taffy to uh, run the, the Twitter account. And Taffy is nice and it seems like her kindness is what makes it so she's bad at her job. <laughs> That's the thing that makes her bad at being a social media person is that she's kind. She's unable to do biting comebacks.
0: Yeah. Is, is, that is an interesting thing about Twitter because they talk about this in like different corporate personalities. And why do corporations have to be sassy? Yeah. Is this something we expect from our corporations? Right. Maybe. Right.
1: We expect them to have a personality and we also expect that personality to be sassy. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm also guilty of that. I love the Steakups Twitter handle. I like those tweets.
0: Wait, I actually don't know what Steakups is. Oh my God. Wait, am I missing something? Uh, am I out of the zeit? Zyka-
1: Yeah, you're right. Damn, what the hell? (laughs) I never expected that this would happen on this podcast. uh, (laughs) I'm the one who knows an internet thing. Uh, The Steakums Twitter handle. Okay, so Steakums are a meat product. It's like very thinly sliced meat. I haven't had one in many years, but I have fond memories of them from my college years um, that you like grill up and you basically can make your own steak and cheese with these little thin meat slices. Mm. And the Twitter handle is run by like essentially a modern philosopher who from time to time just tells the internet how they should be behaving and does such a great job of it and they sign all their tweets stake em bless
0: I mean if it means that good maybe they have you know <laughs> a place to stand on this a moral, stand- yeah, moral high ground here
1: <laughs> yeah and every once in a while somebody comes at them and is like steakums has a bunch of ingredients it's like real meat is only one ingredient and then steakums will just like post a screenshot of their <laughs> ingredient list and it's just steak
0: so pure you
1: can't come at steakums don't go at steak no. steakums will drag you pepper gets dragged after the ethan post she
0: gets grilled and now a word from our sponsor Steakum. I yeah i don't remember what we we're talking about before we started talking about steak yeah. <laughs> And why do corporations have to be sassy?
1: KFC that only follows seven herbs. <laughs> 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 seven people named Herb.
0: <laughs> oh, the Spice Girls. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, so good. Okay,
1: to, to to move on from from the Stekums issue, uh, Mills. I know that you were on a synchronized swim team. So, any of those pool class dynamics did they resonate with you?
0: oh a thousand percent like i feel like swimming is one of those sports where you have to share a pool like there is a power dynamic there and the school to a certain extent is telling you who they value the most based on how much pool time you get and when you're allowed to use the pool and so like as a synchronized swimmer we could only use the pool after the swim team was done using it and so all my synchronized swimming practice happened between 6 and 9 pm my entire four years. And you just already knew you were like, I'm a second class citizen here because they get to like use it first, which is classic. You know, no one values the arts. (laughs) There is like this element also of we ended up so my swim swim club no longer exists at my high school because what ended up coming in was water polo. And water polo is a competitive sport. People can get scholarships from it. And so that even our time that was like the six to nine ended up getting taken over by water polo after I left. My dad is a lawyer. So like, it is it, My team existed <laughs> until I graduated, <laughs> but after that, it all became water polo. There's totally like a weird dynamic of like sharing these sorts of spaces that I totally get that I kind of wish I had had a meet cute with the captain of the swim team where I could have gotten us more time to practice. Also, they would do like this stupid thing where they'd throw ice in the water to like make <laughs> it worse. <laughs> and then you'd swim in like this ice, oh my God, it was terrible.
1: So the rivalry between teams, that, that's a real thing.
0: Oh, it's, it's definitely a real thing. Although I kind of really wish we had had a diving team. That would have been really, really cool. Like our pool is indoors and with a low ceiling. So I don't think that would have been possible at my school. But I always think that like diving, particularly synchronized diving, is like the most impressive sport. So like mad respect for that, which I first fell in love with, with the Mary Kay and Ashley classic billboard dad. As we all have watched. <laughs> but yeah, it was interesting also the bringing it to the plot of like how scared she was of diving. Mm-hmm. Or not diving, even just like jumping off of a platform or a high dive that I thought was really interesting. Because I think there is an element of rivalry that comes from I am amazed and jealous of what you can do, which I am too afraid to do. Which I'm sure... At least like that existed for us with like with the swim team. They probably were not that amazed with what we were doing because they don't understand how hard it is.
1: It's uh, it's also a classic leap of faith trope that she Uh needs to literally take the dive um, and have faith that he's telling the truth and that they will be able to be comfortable around each other symbolically.
0: James, have you jumped off of a high dive before?
1: Yes. uh, When I was in soccer camp in my in my youth. After lunch, we could swim in the pool at the the camp location, and they had a high dive, and on the last day, they'd let people jump off of it with, you know, high supervision. Strong social pressure. There's strong social pressure to, to do the jump in moments like that, especially among male communities where it's like, if you don't do it, it's because of some deficiency in your bravery.
0: So I have, have you? Oh, obviously. Basically, I went to like summer camp and did like swim lessons every summer from like childhood until like high school. And so every afternoon you go to the pool and there was this one pool that had this really like exclusive diving area that had like low dives, high dives and then platforms. And there were three platforms, one, two and three. And so the whole thing is you want to get to the place where you're at least jumping off of three. You're probably not diving, (laughs) (laughs) but like there's such cred that you get for like getting to number three and jumping off of it. And so, so much of like my childhood was getting brave enough to get off of number three. Which I, of course, did. It was terrifying. There were many times that I went up to three and I climbed down, (laughs) and, like, went to one. Because, like, I feel like one was barely more than the high dive. High dive was, like, kind of scary. Still close enough. I was able to get from, like, diving on the low dive to diving on the high dive. I never got to diving off of a platform.
1: Oh, no, I would have never took a dive off of the platform. That is, (laughs) I definitely would have over-rotated.
0: Yeah, it was very... Fun to, like, see people in, like, that scenario. I also can't explain why it's scary to jump off of those. I saw people do it all the time. I, myself, had, like, jumped off of, like, one and two. Like, the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to have a really terrible belly flop. And it's going to, like, hurt, like, the dickens. But, like, you're going to survive. And so what is so scary about it? And then when you do it, it's exhilarating. Because, like, (laughs) you can't get off. You're just you going to go down. No one's going to save you.
1: Exhilarating like young love in Tweet Cute.
0: Exactly. It's
1: a good objective correlative. There's the the emotional weight associated with jumping off of that platform and the emotional weight associated with your first monogamous relationship or your first, just like, I'm excited about this boy or girl that you're about to enter into a relationship with.
0: Yeah. And I feel like that level of uncertainty, because I feel like when you jump off the third platform, Mm -hmm. you're like falling and you have this idea of what it's supposed to be like. You're going to fall and you're going to hit the water. And so then you start falling for a period of time and you're like, I feel like I should have hit the water by now. <laughs> and yeah. you haven't. And you're like stomach twists. And you're like, how yeah. much more until I hit the water? And right.
1: You're aware of the fall. You're aware
0: of the fall. And yeah, there is that element of, I think I know how this is supposed to go. I think I know what's happening in the scenario. Mm-hmm. But until you hit the water, it's not even real yet.
1: Hearing you talk about the shared space of the pool made me also think about how this book did, I think, a pretty good job of treating the internet as a third space, like the I, I believe that's the term for it in like sociology or anthropology. Um, These idea of, like, coffee shops as third spaces. Again, the, the comparison between the digital world of Weasel and Twitter and the physical world of Big League Burger and Girl Cheesing. Like, the idea of a third space is explored in both of those, where Girl Cheesing Deli, when it's described, is there's people helping each other with homework everybody knows each other's names it's a community that gives each other the benefit of the doubt and like assumes good intent with everybody that's that's in the community Whereas Pepper throughout the book laments the fact that Big League Burger no longer feels like that. And it's all of a sudden an impersonal, disconnected community that that is just like a result of scale. It's the same with Weasel where everybody's helping each other with homework. They're talking about the the schedule and giving each other emotional support or whatever. And on Twitter, they're bullying each other. And so like with scale, the third space becomes inhospitable, which again, I think is a, a romanticization of the local that appears in the book.
0: I have thought about this in general, like, as a concept where when you want people to solve problems, when you want people to invest in solutions that benefit people as much as possible, people at the local level are often the best suited to do that. And as you see in the book with, like, Weasel and the study groups and all of that, and what is good about scale, what is good about sort of, like, being really, really big is optimizing. Like, when I think about, like, me getting my vaccine... (laughs) It was like in an assembly line. I was like, oh man, like Eli Whitney would love to be here. Like, they would be so proud. We've gone so far. It's basically just like vaccine lines and like Disney World. And so, I think like there's this element of like when you're at a larger scale, you can optimize efficiency and mm-hmm. like make things happen faster. I think it's a classic equality versus equity question. Mm-hmm. Like, the local is best at coming up with equitable solutions where you're giving people exactly what they need, given their unique circumstances mm-hmm. and uh, unique variables. When you try to think about like, how am I going to help a lot of people all at once? It's very hard to do it equitably because there are so many unique circumstances that you would have to control for and know about, which you are never going to Mm -hmm. know if you're not in each of those local contexts, so what you need to optimize for is equality.
1: Yeah, that's a really good, I just found that really interesting in how this book just assumed that the digital world is a place that we live, and it treated the digital spaces in the same way that it treated the physical spaces, and I think actually it did a pretty good job of calling attention to that very explicitly, and that the way those two things are described is really similar. And in doing so, it sort of like points away almost towards these kinds of questions of equality versus
0: equity. Well, the internet's supposed to be like the great normalizer, right? It's like putting us all on the same level, potentially. I feel like, though, what the internet mostly actually exists for is not for me to communicate with other people, but to just like look at delicious, amazing things that I want to eat. And I feel like the book definitely <laughs> helped with this. Yes. Yes.
1: I was wishing I wasn't on a diet for most of the book because I wanted to make the So Sorry Blondies, as I said in my intro, and the grilled cheese. The grilled cheese just sounded delicious.
0: Oh, I mean, I definitely made a grilled cheese um, that I am eating on this podcast. I'm calling it my Hammy Jammy Sammy. Nice. Because it's got ham, jam, and it's a Sam.
1: The the making a podcast Hammy Jammy Sammy.
0: It's pretty good. I... (laughs) I mean, I forgot how good grilled cheeses are. (laughs) It's a classic. But now I'm also jealous that you two made the So Sorry Blondies. We did. What, did you use any mix-ins? Was it brown butter? Tell me what It was uh,
1: so. In in the book, it's described that Pepper's sister likes it when they put in extra peanut butter, and I also like it when they put in extra peanut butter. So that was mm-hmm. our that was our primary mix-in. Was it was it was pretty peanut-heavy. I
0: mean that sounds delicious.
1: And I I do think that this book did a good job of making me hungry. I think it's a difficult thing to describe food well in writing because you just get stuck on words like delicious, or amazing, and, and you end up like not actually describing it. But this book legitimately made me hungry, and I think it might have been because of those quirky names, like So Sorry Brownies, the, the use of the word gooey, I think pretty frequently, Monster Cake, I don't know, it, it like left it intentionally vague for my imagination to fill in some of the other qualities of it, and I think it did a, a good job of it. Also, you know, I think that food in literature is a really interesting trope. Anyway, because going back to like the Last Supper kind of things, like the communion of people coming together and eating is often a paying attention to who's cooking, what the power dynamics are. These things have a relationship to larger tropes in the book. And so even just like who's helping to cook, who's being served. And I think this book, it had a lot of that.
0: Yeah, I, there's definitely an element of the way to both of their hearts was through their stomachs on both sides. Yeah. Right. And I think there is this element of a food exchange. Because there is like a paradigm, obviously, in a one-way exchange, but there is this very equal exchange between the two of them that is really quite lovely. And while I don't love the ending when it came to like, oh, the mom is still like maybe a corporate bitch, the interestingness of both of them ending up working at each other's family companies was like a very interesting sort of like exchange, similar to like how they were exchanging food that did feel poetic to me.
1: Uh, agreed. Agreed. Yeah, and I, I thought some of the most touching and realistic scenes of their relationship happen when they're cooking together in the deli kitchen. And this idea of just like them making something together for the community was, uh, you know, symbolically connected to just what the book wanted us to to feel about their relationship and their future together.
0: It's like how we created a podcast together. Yeah,
1: we make something together.
0: It's beautiful and better than San Francisco and Milan separately. It's better combined. Agreed. So really, the question, James, is what is the next podcast recipe we'll be making together? What should we be reading?
1: Well, I just heard from our producer that You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson is pretty good. And I know that you've got some thoughts about prom.
0: Some thoughts?
1: And that sounds like (laughs) where this one's going. So maybe we should take a look at that one.
0: I mean, that's the one thing this book was missing. It was a big high school dance moment, which you know I love. So I'm in.
1: Literary Connections is recorded by me, James Earle.
0: And me, Melissa Hansen.
1: And we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. Please join us next week for our discussion of You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson. See you there. Melissa, I know you were, you were part of a water polo team in high school. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I was not part of a water polo No. Team. I was I was a synchronized swimmer. Synchronized swimmer. Oh my god. <laughs> Could you imagine me playing water polo?
1: I have I I've, I've spent most of my life thinking <laughs> <laughs>